Hi, welcome to episode 89 of the Greater Than Code podcast. I'm Rain Hendricks here with my friend Jessica Kerr. Good morning, Rain. I am here today with Coraline Ada Emke. That's a lie. Um, no, it's still morning here. Oh, no, I mean that Coraline is here. Am I here? Am I, am I really here? Am I really, is this a waking dream or is this a podcast with our good friend Noel Rappin? Oh, well, I'm awake. I don't know about the rest of you. Episode uh, 89 of A Waking Dream. <laughs> yeah, no rapping. No rapping to principal developer at Table XI, not Table 11. Um, that's uh, that's Nancy's table, and she's uh, having a bad day today, so tip nicely. Um, <laughs> Noel hosts the Tacked on Right podcast. He's also the author of multiple technical books, including Rails 5 Test Prescriptions, Trust Driven Development, and a book that we talked about in a previous episode, Take My Money, Accepting Payments on the Web. And Noel is on the Twitters as at Noel Rapp and online at NoelRappin.com. Welcome, Noel. Welcome back. Hey, yeah, I like to check in with you guys every 90 episodes or so. Uh, <laughs> just just to make sure that, you know, everything's going okay. So what was your favorite episode out of the last 90, Noel? What was my favorite out of the last 90? Yeah. Like, uh, other than my own need to hear my own voice? That is putting me right on the spot. Okay, oh, it's okay. We'll wait. I'm sure the listeners will <laughs> understand. What's one that you like? I listen to many, many of them. I really liked Avdi when Avdi was on. That counts. That counts. Yeah, that we'll was an episode. That. We'll accept that and all. Did you know that that like forgetting is really a lot of effort? And in information theory, forgetting causes a lot of entropy. I, I used to. I used to know that, but. Uh, see, I, uh, see, my point here is that if you have know. the ability to like blank on things <laughs> and clear all that extra information out of your head that you don't need anymore, that's actually a superpower. I, I really just attribute it to being like in my late forties. <laughs> Forgetting seems to be much easier uh, than it used to be. You're just embracing entropy. <laughs> yeah, that's how it feels. It feels a lot like embracing entropy. Yeah, yeah, the eventual heat death of the universe, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. We're all doing our part. Yeah. So, Noel, when we had you on the show last time, you were promoting a book. And we talked about um, the book in great detail. And uh, I went back to look at the episode. I read the transcript. And it was kind of an unusual thing for us to do a tech episode. And I feel like we didn't really get to know the real Noel Rappin. And also, I noticed that we had not yet established the opening question that we use in every single episode. So I hope you're prepared for this. Noel Rappin, what's your superpower and how did you develop it? I really thought I was going to get out of this by, by virtue of having been out here before. Nice uh, try. Uh, well, for a long time, my superpower was being asked for directions in places where I did not know my way around, which is a, a pretty useless superpower, but to happen fairly regularly. Beyond that, my I actual... You what? You already gave me, yes, my superpower is forgetting. I forgot my superpower. (laughs) (laughs) And you developed that in your late 40s, I guess we're uh, we're all done here. I really did. Yeah. He's a a late bloomer as a superhero. (laughs) Pretty sad. But seriously, like, you've been doing development for a long time. You've been very active in the community. You've been a prolific author. What do you feel like kind of like sets Uh, you apart? I think that professionally, one of the things that 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 I do feel like I'm I, I'm fairly good at is like extrapolating the consequences of choosing certain 
uh, making certain tech decisions in a way that I think makes me pretty good at explaining consequences of tech decisions and why you might want to test or why you might do things a certain way. So I, I think I've gotten pretty good at quickly understanding technologies well enough to explain them to other people. And, and that's, that, that's actually what I feel I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at. And you mentioned consequences, which I think is really important. One of the, uh, I've been doing development for, oh, 24 years now professionally, yeah. which is just, very those weird. Those numbers just keep going higher and it's, higher. It's, it's weird for a 30-year-old to say that. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but seriously, when I came up, waterfall was the de facto standard. I'm actually considering doing a talk on what we lost when we abandoned waterfall. And one of my criticisms of Agile is this thinking in two-week increments. And we have like this advantage that architecture has been democratized but I don't think we do – so we're empowering people to make architecture decisions. I don't think we're preparing people for understanding the consequence of architecture decisions that are made in two-week increments. Yeah, I think that the implication of that by the people who created – like the original XP team was – I think came with the implicit understanding that the team would be expert enough to catch themselves if they made a bad decision in their two-week increments. And I don't think that that's true for most teams. And I don't know, to me, one of the interesting things about the way teams do agile, the way teams do whatever the heck they call their development process is every team to me cobbles together their own set of stuff that works for them and then feels guilty that they're not doing such written on the team or something like that. I think that teams become aware of that lack of long-term thinking and try different things to uh, work around it. You know, they, they try to have kickoff meetings or they try to have things that help solve the problems that they're having in a kind of a ad hoc way. But I don't think that there's a whole lot of real direction for how to do that kind of planning and still be responsive. I think v- very much like Coraline said, there, there are different cultural patterns in terms of how organizations go about developing software. And I think to do Agile effectively, you need to have a pretty I don't think advanced is the right word, but you need to have one that lets you choose processes based on their outcomes and lets you steer the organization at a, at a sort of broad level. And the problem with, with that is that the last time a survey was done to see how many organizations fit into that cultural pattern, none of them did. Yeah, I think that the the number of organizations that want to try and do something that they call agile is very high. And the number of organizations that are actually prepared to deal with the implications of it. Uh, is is pretty non-existent. <laughs> I tell I, I tell the story a bunch, but about ten years ago, I worked at a, a big telecommunications company and attempted to do agile development within the constructs of oh heck, it was Motorola. They invented Six Sigma. They loved waterfall processes to the point where, uh, literally on the wall as you would walk, there would be a poster of their like waterfall process, which they called M gates. Uh, which had like a 15 to zero setup where like 15 was gleam in an engineer's eye and zero was end of life. And like every product expected to go through that. But they also wanted to be agile, sort of. Like they wanted to have teams try and do agile. And I actually attended a one-day internal conference for agile development among software teams at Motorola. And it was like crazy in the sense that these teams were like, you couldn't actually design, develop software the way that Motorola wanted you to do it. Like software just doesn't work that way. It was too strict of a process. But there was no actual guidance for how to actually do stuff. So all the successful teams just sort of 
made stuff up and then made it look like they were doing the waterfall process and then they were calling it agile and they were doing some weird mishmash of stuff that it was not replicable because there was no real process involved. You know, I had project managers tell me that you couldn't possibly have an iteration at Motorola shorter than five weeks because by the time you did the requirements at the beginning of the iteration and all the testing at the end of the iteration and, and got everything done, it would have to be at least five weeks. Like that was, but yet they still wanted to be agile in a way that I never quite figured out what they were actually trying to do. You think that's it, a result it, of the marketing around agile? At the time, I think it was. I think it was a sense that, like, internally, they deep, deep down, I always felt really wanted software to be like manufacturing because they felt that they understood manufacturing. But it's not. And I think it was on some level clear that the process on paper didn't work uh, or didn't work very well. And so it led to a lot of, like, you know, they were they were seeking various levels of CRM certification in some groups and some groups were trying to be agile and, and there was no real consistent, I mean, it was a huge company, but there was no real consistent, uh, mechanism for managing change, developing software projects. Like, uh, I mean, and I was just in one tiny, tiny little corner of consumer of, uh, internal support software, uh, where we were in, we were, uh, you know, insignificant enough to be allowed to do pretty much whatever we wanted, but it seemed to be a case where they wanted, they didn't know what they wanted and they weren't prepared to accept the idea that, uh, managing change was an important part of software projects. It's interesting. The, uh, I think the difference between an organization like table XI from my understanding of what table XI does, um, which is mainly consultative, right? Yeah. In a large organization, I've done both and I've been at startups for the last many years. I work at Stitch Fix now and we have about 170 engineers. And what I've noticed, I'm on a cross engineering project now. So I'm interacting with lots of different teams. One of the surprising things to me is that there's not where I am a consistent approach to process. Rather, it's left to the individual teams to come up with whatever works best for them. And at first, I, I was kind of alarmed by that, but I've kind of come around to the thinking that every team has its own culture, and process is a reflection of culture because process is essentially a way of streamlining and automating communication. So why wouldn't you tailor that to an individual group of engineers that's working closely together? What would be the benefit of having one established process that every team, despite their culture, would have to follow. Yeah, we give individual teams a fair amount of leeway uh, on their process. Our, our teams start off by discussing the uh, a lot of things about their process at the beginning of a project. Um, most of our projects are relatively small, uh, which makes it a little bit easier to manage. We try to be consistent enough so that people can move back and forth. But even then, different projects have different requirements in terms of like how the designers are going to interact with the development team. You know, when how involved the client is has a big impact on how far in advance you can plan out stories, uh, or how in advance you want to plan out stories. Or you know, is the is the design coming in after development? Are they coming in during development? Before development? You know, all of these things have huge impacts, and they're they're sort of outside the kind of you know, on paper, agile XP practices, but they're definitely the kind of like cultural and, and project factors that individual teams need to take into account as they try and decide how they are going to work together to build the software. 
I also think that you asked what are the advantages of not letting teams self-determine. And I think for a large company like Motorola, the advantage is that they don't have the competency to create that sort of variety in their teams. They're a hierarchical organization and hierarchies are based on reducing variety, not creating variety. Mm-hmm. And they just, they don't have the cultural competency to manage that much variety in their yeah. teams. They, they certainly, I don't, I don't think they did at the time. Like this was a long time ago and several ownership changes and breakups ago. So who knows what's going on there right now? You know, I, they definitely, it was definitely a culture where you were judged by metrics that were understandable by the person who was three levels up and didn't know your team, uh, which has a big, big impact. Like I think, uh, you know, one of the reasons big companies are the way they are is because you have to have all of this added process and added communication because people are essentially have responsibility for teams that they don't know. There's too many people. I like to say um, that process is a an organizational scar. Like something happened at some point in time, some manager mm-hmm. didn't get the information they needed to, to present a viable case to their managers as to whether a project was succeeding or failing. So processes are put in place to try and channel that information in a way that someone yeah. once needed. Yeah, I like to talk about process as being like explicitly all the activities that you do to communicate state to all the stakeholders. And and that lets you talk about like good process that communicates state effectively and efficiently and like bad process that is communicating state in a way that nobody ever uses. Like, you know, I've been on projects where teams were expected to create UML diagrams for weeks that nobody ever saw. Like that's bad process. But I've also been on teams where, you know, normal developer activities were turned into a long-term documentation. Like that's good process. Like it's efficient and, and communicates status. I like to use the word legibility for this in the sense that James C. Scott uses it in seeing like a state, which is understanding that rolls up because three levels up, you do need some indication of what the team is doing, at mm-hmm. least to make decisions about what to go forward with. So if you're providing that kind of information from the team, that's useful process. But yeah, the UML diagrams, those don't roll up. Nobody looks at those. Yeah. Yeah. I actually explicitly asked my boss, I'm on our new team now, and I explicitly asked my boss, like, what is the format of your reporting to other managers and to your boss? Nice. Because I want to provide you data that will support the way that you're communicating up is it you know is it data is it metrics is it milestones what is it exactly yeah i've spent so much time recently working at like very small very hierarchically flat organizations where i have completely lost the reflex that causes me to mask or or like clothe what i'm doing in the data metrics that the great grand boss is going to need uh i i have lost that instinct which is you know mostly good i think yeah, that's a great example of like how communication gets tailored to the culture in which it's operating, right? Yeah, I think that, you know, the communication pathways within a culture, within a company, like they're there for a reason. It may not always be a good reason or an explicit reason, but, you know, they're there because at one point they solved a problem for somebody. And, and understanding like why that's the case can help you, first of all, thrive within it. And second of all, change it if it needs to be changed. Like you need to understand what's, what's, what, you know, if you, if there's a piece of the process that you want to change, you need to understand what purpose it's serving before you can try and offer a change, which brings us back, I think, to agile adoption. Cause I think a lot of places tried to adopt agile 
without really thinking about the processes they were displacing or the people that they were displacing and point what, what role those had within the organization. If you want to change a piece of the process, you need to know what purpose it's serving, which is often difficult to find out. Sometimes it's not serving anybody anymore. Like it's just, yeah, it's just there. It's just there because somebody liked it or it, it did something at, at one time. And then it's impossible to figure out really. You just kind of, you stop doing it and see what happens, which is basically what happened with the UML diagrams. Honestly, we stopped doing them and nobody cared. I, uh, <laughs> nice. I had a job once where I had a custom um, project management system and it had reporting capabilities. So you could write a summary report of what you had done. And I actually inserted a, a bug into the page that called, this is going to date me, a CGI script that reported the logged in user and the fact that they had accessed the page. And I found that none of my managers were actually reading the reports that I spent several hours preparing every single week. So to your point, I stopped doing them and, and no one noticed. Well, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful story because it really shows the power of building into your code messaging that feeds back to you. That feedback loop, right? Of I did this thing. Was it useful? And I've read somewhere that one of our human superpowers is not doing a good job, specifically like not meeting any particular standard except the ones that we're actually receiving pull for that people are actually bugging us about because uh, like these yeah. uh, UML diagrams, there's all kinds of stuff that is no longer needed. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of uh, research about development. To me- I mean, not just in development, but in general, there's the, 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 you know, the idea that people respond to the metrics that they're judged on and that the more weight is placed on a metric, the less valuable it becomes as a tool for measuring the thing that it's supposed to measure because of, you know, because of the, the incentive to game it. And, you know, that Motorola culture was a very, very metrics driven culture, uh, and very much driven by gaming metrics, uh, in a way that, that I think that the smaller, like more web consulting companies that have been on have not really had that kind of internal incentive. Yeah. You mentioned that that the teams that got stuff done would get stuff done, then paper it over to look like they were following the official process. And so the processes that are actually working are not only not reproducible, they're deliberately hidden. Yes. And it's a, and it's a fair amount of effort to do so. Like it was not, you know, it, it took a little bit of time and effort to make it look like you were crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's of the, the process on paper. And yeah, I, I think that like, Agile XP came in on a wave of frustration with environments like that, right? And in a sense that that there was a lot of of effort being wasted. And I think that the idea that something was thrown away with that, I think is I definitely true. The idea that that the Agile XP practices are incomplete in terms of like how to manage software teams, I think is like really clear. And I think increasingly becoming clear as uh, you know, there, there's more as we talk more and more about diversity in software teams as we talk more and more about how teams look when they don't look like the original XP team, sort of the limitations of those practices in creating a culture that can continually communicate, trust each other, develop software, you know, I I think that becomes more and more clear. The thing that always bothered me about Agile is that it's a set of beliefs 
about how to work that are, are very effective for organizations that have reached the level of cultural competency where they already use feedback loops and they're good at communicating. It says nothing about how to get there from where most organizations start, which is they have a process and they follow it sometimes. Yeah, I, I think that's completely true. Hey, have, have any of you read the book, The Leprechauns of Software Development? No. Oh, is that Lauren Bosovit? Yes. I think we had him on the podcast or some podcasts. Okay, so the Leprechauns of Software Development is uh, is an attempt to take some of the claims that we sort of throw off about software development, the existence of 10x developers, uh, the cost of change curve, that kind of stuff that we're all kind of familiar with. The idea that the way that we sort of pass it around is that code that has been uh, the, the 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 longer the code has existed, the more expensive it is to change. That that we have this sort of exponential curve that we're probably all picturing in our heads. Uh, as I, as I mentioned that, right. And it turns out that like, that wasn't the original claim in when the original XP book, like reprinted the claim, they misunderstood the original claim and it's presented without data. And there was never much data on it to begin with. And the original claim was really just sort of that defects in production take longer to fix than defects caught before production, which could mean all kinds of things, including just that you catch all the easy bugs before they go to production. And yet, you know, we build this whole, and I, like I have been at, I, 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 you know, use a lot of the agile practices. I like a lot of the agile practices and they're all built on this idea that they bend this cost of change curve that may not have needed to be bent the way that they talk about bending it. Or, you know, without the, the empirical evidence for like any of this actually working is disturbingly thin and, and hard to even understand how you would create empirical evidence for something like a cost, the cost of change curve in all cases, you know. But we want to believe it. So if we can sure. believe it, we will. Sure. You know, if you've been developing a long time, you have a certain like nuts and bolts rule of thumb sense that like old code is hard to deal with. So when somebody puts a curve on the wall and says, this shows that old code is hard to deal with, your tendency is not to look for, uh, you know, it, it, there, there's the, the cognitive biases that makes you not really question it because it kind of can, you know, matches the understanding that you already have. But it's still like the empirical data for the benefit of just about any developer practice is pretty weak for a lot of reasons. You know, I think it's, it's a relatively new field. Um, it's very hard to create any kind of robust like social science experiment in general. Uh, how you measure this stuff is not clear. And it's just, you know, we, we, we make these decisions because we think things are going to be better, but we have no real sense of what better is. And you can't study these things with the traditional scientific method because you can't do controlled experiments. Right. So yeah, there's a long standing thing. I used to be my, I did graduate work in educational technology, which involved, you know, it was much more of a social science in terms of my actual, the the actual work that I did and the, the studies that I was working on and it was programming like it was. And so I wound up, you know, spent a lot of time reading a lot of different like social science education research and, and, you know, very, very broadly speaking, what you get is laboratory studies that show very strong effects that you hope imply for something about the real world, or you get real world studies that are very, very messy, don't really show clear effects, uh, and have no real sense of how one study might influence other contexts. And it's very hard to thread the needle between those two to get something that actually has useful information. And I think a lot of that applies to 
how you might even theoretically understand what software teams do that would improve or, or not improve their chances of being successful. Yeah, I think one of the fundamental problems I'm reminded of of the Journal of Irreproducible Results, which is a, a very fun read. Hopefully they're still printing that. I know they were a while back. You can't apply scientific method to software development because no software development is replicable. You can't, yeah. you can't take two teams on two different projects and measure them in the same way. About, gosh, more than 20 years ago now, I attended a conference called Empirical Studies of Programmers, which was it was cool. I wish I, I wish I remembered more of it. But I, I remember, like, when we're talking about like what kinds of things was w- was considered like cutting edge empirical study of programmers. The, the one thing that I remember most clearly was a study of programmers' internal visualizations. And the the research methodology was they would you know the the they would have programmers solve like algorithmic problems and like what they were visualizing in their head as they you know, thought about sort algorithms or, or, or whatever. And, you know, it was interesting. There's a wide variety. I'm not sure that that's actually any kind of reproducible empirical method at all. Um, but like, it's very hard to get at, you know, and that's just like how one person approaches development. When you're talking about how a team approaches development and you have these lab studies of college students about, you know, that say like college students who use TDD were X percent faster and had X percent fewer errors than college students that didn't or vice versa. And it doesn't really, it's not a toy problem. It doesn't really apply to real development. Or you have like, I think for a long time, Microsoft was doing a lot of internal studies, not all of which I assume were published, but I seem to remember that for a long time, they were trying to do a lot of internal studies of what was effective for them, but it's not clear. One way I think about this a lot is like, what sort of evidence would somebody have to present to me to convince me that test-driven development was bad? Like, and, and, I, and if there is no such evidence, then it's not a scientific belief. It's exactly it's faith. It's faith. Exactly. I think it would be very hard to convince me that test-driven development is bad. Um, not the least of which, because you know, advocating for it is a significant part of my professional reputation at the moment. And of course, you know, th- there's that cognitive bias. But yeah, you do have to sort of wonder like whether these things can even be called scientific kind of beliefs at all. This is a larger question, I think, which is how do you make decisions when you don't have evidence? What process do you use? My process for making decisions? Yeah, in general, how do, like how do people make decisions when they don't have enough evidence to support any any particular decision? There's scientific evidence of like controlled studies, and then there's in context evidence. Right. I mean, ultimately, like we have to like in the context of software, like we have to decide some set of practices to do and some set of practices not to do. I don't know how many teams get much beyond like we're comfortable with this practice; it's worked for us in the past. You know, and, and I don't see what's wrong with that. If it works for them, then it works in that context. Um, I, yeah, I think that at some point, like, you can't, like, good enough and functional has to be good enough and functional because there's no way to know best. Right. Well, the, the things you can do is, and we tried another thing for two weeks, and then we tried this other thing for two weeks, and we came back to this. I mean, I mean, that's like the strongest evidence you're going to get in something so contextual. What's interesting to me is that there's an interesting catch in a lot of the agile practices where if you kind of do them halfway, they are very, very painful. (laughs) That's so true. And that's true of like test-driven development. If you like have one person on your team who does test-driven development, (laughs) uh, having been that person, like 
it's it's not a good if you like pair program like 25% of the time you're not getting any benefit from it and it's just logistical drag like all of these practices and it's weird because then as the advocate you wind up saying like well your problem with your team's test driven development is you didn't do it hard enough and that also becomes like a faith belief and it also becomes the kind of thing that people say well consultants always say that if you didn't if it didn't work for you you didn't do it right which was yeah. you know a long standing Agile XP issue too. So then the question becomes sometimes not what would convince you that TDD doesn't work, but what could show you under which contexts TDD doesn't work? So then I can't answer. Like I, I, I feel like I can answer the question of like, I have seen attempts to try and te- like hundred percent test coverage, for example, like I have seen attempts to that's try and a, make, that's a metric to game. Right. <laughs> I have seen attempts to try to get 100% test coverage wind up being a lot more trouble than they were worth. And as a result, I stopped like trying to reach for that. You know, I have seen trying to test certain kinds of view behavior or certain kinds of like interaction behavior that are much easier to mitigate against than to test for. And so I make that kind of determination on a one by one basis. Do I think it's a scientific process? No, but I can say yes. Go ahead. And this is where our definition of science is limited. Because when we say science right now, in our current culture, as we were brought up anyway, science means controlled experiments. But that's not the only kind of like rigorous, careful, clear thinking evidence gathering. When I was a grad student, I was at Georgia Tech and the educational technology people there tended to be sort of the, it was a lot, it was a lot of engineers. It was a lot of engineers and a couple of like social scientists who were like, we do things a little bit differently. And we're talking about qualitative studies. And I I remember a, there was like, we had like really almost like, like our, the one real anthropological social scientist we had, she would say that she considered it her mission to demolish everybody else's logical positivism. Can you define that? On campus? I couldn't at the time, and I'm not 100% sure I can now. I'm going to get this wrong. But it was the idea that was really, really common, especially among the engineers there, that their logic was enough to explain the world. Oh, oh. A lot of the engineers there, the engineering faculty there, proceeded as though they could reason about what we're, you know, about the way to go. Uh, from first principles. And the anthropologist was there to say, no, that's not how any of this works. And was generally, you know, I, I don't know, it was, a t- it was a tough place to be a social anthropologist, I'd have to imagine. I think that speaks to a, a larger problem in our industry where we think that we can reason away problems from first principles. I've seen this over and over and over again as codes of conduct play out. I've seen people say, we don't need an established code of conduct. We'll write our own. And they sit down and they think about it for an hour and they discard the lived experience of people with expertise on certain topics and think they can engineer their way out of every problem. And I think part of that problem comes back to the fact that we think of ourselves as engineers and we look to the hard sciences to draw the metaphors for the way we work. When I think your anthropologist colleague had the right idea and software development is so much more social than people like to think of it. And it is so much more interpersonal and so much more about communication that we're borrowing techniques from the wrong professions. 
from the wrong knowledge domains. Yeah, I, I always go back and forth on what the best metaphor for, for software development is, except that I've always hated martial arts metaphors for it in any context for some reason. There are things that we can learn from engineering, but it's a limited set. Like I think engineering to me is about managing against constraints, and I think that there's a body of knowledge there that has some metaphorical benefit, but I think that there's a lot that we have to learn from other like collaborative groups from, you know, theater, from music, from all kinds of people who gather together to, to build things in any context. My unpopular opinion is that calling it engineering was one of the biggest mistakes we've ever made. Yeah. I think calling it engineering probably overstated it. I think it's definitely true that there's an engineering kind of component to some of it. Like it kind of depends on what you're doing. Cause I think that there's stuff that, that is more engineer like than others. But I think that the the like day to day, my day to day experience over the last most of the last 20 years has not felt like I'm building bridges very often. I think part of it is that we're trying to legitimize our profession by tying it to something that people understand instead of acknowledging that software development is unique. That, it's something entirely new. Yeah, it is something it, new. Might, it might be also interesting to think about why would calling something engineering confer legitimacy on it? What's legitimate about engineering versus theater or some of the other things that you mentioned? Yeah. And the hard sciences in general versus the social sciences, as Noel right. brought up. It's the social scientists who were like, we have ways of answering these questions. We have ways of finding – there is no such thing as best, but of finding – better ways of working within a context. And I think, I think what the trick is that we all get to be scientists instead of using science, we get to actually do science. That is, we get to study uh, what happens, find the causality, find those reasons, find the uses and find what works better or worse within our particular context that no other scientist can study for us because the rules aren't universal. I don't know. That sounds like a lot of work. Maybe we could just bring in a consultant to tell us what to do. Exactly. It is totally a lot. <laughs> That's exactly how it works, right? And that's that's where you get, we want to be agile, but they want someone to come in and tell them the how, to give them the answers of what is agile. When agile isn't answers, it's questions. Right. Yeah. It's much more important that you ask the question. Like uh, we talk about replicating things that TableXI does well at other places, but the, the way to do that is not by getting the answers we get. It's by asking the questions we ask, which is something that I think has come up on this particular show before as a concept. Like Copy the questions, not the answers. Yeah. I think if I had to pick an established discipline to compare software to, it would be anthropology more than engineering. They all play into it. I feel like I spend a lot of time dealing with ancient artifacts, trying to <laughs> decipher their meaning. And to Jessica's point, I mean, like archaeology, If we, I actually did a talk about code archaeology a long time ago. We think of like Indiana Jones dashing through a temple and dodging traps and grabbing the golden idol off the and altar. bugs in production. Yeah, but... But, but think about this. Anthropology includes archaeology, linguistics, and cultural anthropology. Yeah. yeah, but the point I was going to make is that in actual archaeology, you're not dealing with golden idols on altars. You're dealing with broken shards of pottery. And the interesting thing about the broken shard of pottery is not that it's a broken shard of pottery. It's the context in which it was discovered. 
they're very careful to measure like what period in time was it from? Where does it stand physically in relation to other artifacts? What is its placement and what is the meaning of that placement? That's to me what dealing with legacy code is all about. It's not saying this line of code is bad or this line of thinking was bad, but rather trying to uncover the context in which it made sense. Another place where anthropological kind of thinking is really helpful in software development is in studying users, especially if you have access, like if you're building some sort of internal tool and you really have access to the existing processes of the people whose work or lives you're trying to improve, like anthropology has a a longstanding set of tools for describing the way that people go about doing things and uncovering implicit assumptions about how they do it and what they're looking for and what is actually benefiting them and, and not benefiting them. Um, they can come in very handy when you are trying to figure out, you know, how to improve the lives of your like customer service administrators. Yeah, actually, it turns out that one of the most important functions of modern anthropology is taking knowledge that some community has and sharing it with another community that needs it. So for example, in Western Africa, there are anthropologists who are taking knowledge from uh, crop biologists and things like that and sharing that with local farmers. Because they're acting kind of as adapters. To, yeah. To, to they, their them. specialty is taking knowledge that's in this form and transmuting it into this other form that someone else can understand better. Yeah. That sounds tremendously useful to software development. <laughs> Didn't you say that was your superpower? Was, I, was understanding I, a why and then my transmitting that? My, yeah, my superpower is, is yes, I, I suppose. Yeah, I don't think of myself as an anthropologist. I do often think of myself as, as more on the teacher end of it. But I, I hope I'm good at it. If I'm not good at it, then I've been wasting a lot of time over the last 20 years. My grandparents were missionaries and wrote books about missionaries. And that's um, definitely one form of trying to translate knowledge into another context. <laughs> However, many problems that I may have with this particular one. Maybe that's where I get it. Yeah. Uh, missionary is not a terrible uh, metaphor for the lived experience of being a software engineer. <laughs> and having, a consultant at the very least. Yeah. Except you get paid better as a consultant. But nobody writes books about you. You have to write those yourself. Yeah. Noel's been known to do that. What was that one about trust-driven development? So uh, trust and development is something that I've self – it's never quite been finished, although I've been working on it again recently. It's self-published on LeanPub, and it's not actually the how to do Agile book, but it is the like things that I think help teams write software book. One of the main principles of it is if the people on the team all trust each other and trust, you know, all, if the large team, larger team trusts each other, then the specifics of the process you use don't really matter as much. So the goal of the process then is to engender trust. And I think that when I first started working on it, I thought of that as as being something that happened between a client or a product owner and the development team. But I increasingly see it as something that also needs to happen inside the development team as well, that the development team all needs to, to have trust with each other to work effectively together. That reminds me um, of that Google study that showed that one of the prime indicators of team success was a sense of psychological safety among members of the team. Yeah, I have no problem believing that. But also like, what can you do to be in a situation where when you tell the client, like, this is a three point story, this is a five point story that they believe you or when, you know, how do you deal with when inevitably a mistake happens, you underestimate something or there's a bug in production. I mean, a lot of it is also kind of nuts and bolts about how to like run good retrospective meetings and things like that. But the idea is that one of the things that helps manage 
change and the life cycle of a software team is if everybody trusts that you know estimates are made to have a situation where estimates can be made in good faith that you know they'll be received in good faith that you know you can have a real discussion of the complexities of the project and all of that i think is is really important especially on the kind of projects that i that i've worked on for most of the last 10 or 15 years it's interesting to think about why this isn't generally accepted to be true. Why why don't corporations generally focus on building trust among members of teams? And I, I think it's because if you have a hierarchical organization, you don't need trust. You just tell everyone what to do and expect that they do it. Yeah, I think and then that you measure whether they do it or not. I mean, if you think about the kind of trust that a big corporation would kind of try and build from a like a big team building event and and trust falls and things like that, like that seems to be not. Like it seems to be sort of in the wrong direction. And I think that like on some level, if you're talking about the person who's three levels up and looking at a spreadsheet, like it is very hard to see the, the decisions that need to be made inside a team to make one team more effective than another, to create that level of psychological safety. Like that kind of thing does not roll up at a big organization. And I suspect as I'm thinking about it, that that's one reason why successful teams are hard to replicate at organizations like that, because the things that make them successful are very hard to capture in any kind of way. My pet belief is that it, that teams that are successful in larger organizations are able to build a, an internal culture that's different from the surrounding ambient culture of the organization, and that's why they're successful. Uh, uh, they're able to build a culture of trust and like mutual empowerment wall. and things like that. Yeah, exactly. That certainly matches my experience. And that the reason that this can't transfer to the larger organization is because the larger organization doesn't want that culture. Right. Otherwise, they'd already have it. <laughs> or the culture just can't sustain. You know, like the thing that they always say about those giant monster movies, that you can't have a real giant gorilla because the right, bone structure right. the bone structure can't sustain it. Right? right. It's hard to build that kind of trust on a 50-person team because the communication structures just can't sustain it. I also think that the things that are the easiest to copy about a team like that are the things that are not important are not as important. So things like the processes they use and how they're defined are less important than a culture that evaluates processes based on the results that they give you. And that's yeah. a really important distinction and something I, I wanna I wanna bring in. I think that cultures are ways of reacting to values. Cultures are artifacts of shared values. And I think it is possible to have shared values in a large engineering organization and acknowledge that those values are going to be expressed in a culture that is smaller than that engineering organization. I think you run into problems if one team has a radically different set of values from the rest of the organization, mm -hmm. then their work won't be re replicable. Yeah. And they have to, there has to be a way of, of sharing and collaborating and aligning on values yeah. in order to have any kind of consistency in a large organization. Yeah. I think the other large organization that I worked at had a very sharp cultural split between people who were very comfortable with enterprise level software development and people who came to the big company through more uh, regular web development to be as generic as possible on how to describe it. And I think that the, those two sets of people had very different goals in terms of what they were trying to do with their software and very different values and very different cultures. And unfortunately, a, a little bit of like cross-cutting contempt for each other, uh, which was not great. I was not, I was sort of on the outside of, of all of that group. So I, I wasn't really a part of either one for the most part, although 
kind of anyway. Uh, but yeah, like in a large organization, different groups of people are going to have different goals and values and their culture is probably going to come from that. How much of that difference would you say corresponds to uh, who ought to make decisions? Some of it, like in terms of who within the team or which one of those teams should make like, decisions. <laughs> small teams are generally pretty good at democratizing decision making, whereas hierarchical organizations generally managers are the role of the manager is to make decisions. And yeah, I don't think I don't know enough about how the enterprise level teams worked to say that for sure. I don't think that was a huge part of it. I think that in general, they had very different like standards of what constituted good engineering. One group was was just by nature concerned with scale, and one group was, I think, less concerned with scale. And I'm, uh, that's probably oversimplifying, but I think that the just the, the their tools and their general outlook tended to be very divergent, and and their cultures tended to be very divergent. Yeah. So in order for teams to be part of a coherent organization where organization is a higher level of order than the team, they need to agree on what is better. And also on certain constraints that they work in, not constraints like hard rules, but constraints like likely what's easy for them and what they're likely to do. Because, yeah, like if you said, if, one, if they have different definitions of what is good, they're never going to be able to coordinate well. One of the difficult questions for me is you have a bunch of teams. They all want to do their own thing. Imagine that the teams are ships. How do you make sure all the ships are pointing in the right direction? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Magnets. I think that's. <laughs> Compass, literally magnets maps yeah right well then that's where like like higher order things like values and and then things that you can appreciate as being like analogous to a map a common destination uh, you know I, I think that's how you try to do it whether you're successful with it i guess is, is another question entirely like i think that setting up a situation where teams have different goals and different you know, they're on different ships. I think that's fine. I think you need to be careful to make sure that like the ships don't start shooting at each other. Uh, because <laughs> that seems to me where, where you get problems. Yeah, that's true. You can all be pointing in the same direction and shooting at each other. Yeah. And that's probably worse than being pointed in different yeah. directions. And I like this analogy because you don't literally want all the ships pointed in the same direction all the time. Sometimes a certain ship needs to like go around an obstacle and it will like point to the side for a while. And that's okay. You just want it to like trend toward being pointed in this direction. I really thought for a second that you were going to say go around an octopus. Oh, no, I like octopuses. (laughs) But an octopus can't be an obstacle, Jessica. A giant octopus... You definitely want to avoid that with your with your clipper ship. Well, that's and, true, and I don't want to kill the octopus either. What, yeah. what are we talking about? Now? <laughs> I want to. I want to. Software, of course. I want to riff on this on this boat's metaphor a little bit more because what okay. you're describing are motorboats. And when I grew up, I grew up on sailboats. And if you want to take a sailboat to a destination, you do not travel in a straight line. You are tacking back and forth. And you're responding to the wind. You're responding to the direction of the waves. You have that big picture vision of where you want to end up. But it is a winding path back and forth to get there. And I think that's a better analogy in a way because there are so many variables in software development. You can't say it's this direction. You can say it's this destination. Ooh, that's beautiful. Yeah, and that means that... The 15-step plan is made for motorboats 
And software doesn't run with motorboats. We're not a manufacturing plant. We can't follow a, pre a predictable path. Although I will say that even manufacturing plants are learning that it's a good idea to let employees make decisions and to increase the variety of the things that they can do. Yes, but not nearly to the degree that software engineers have to. For sure. But if it's good for manufacturing, imagine how much better it is for, for creative endeavors like software. But Rain, that, in, that involves changing our internal definitions of how the world works beyond our sixth grade understanding of how the world works. Oh, and that's, no. that's dangerous territory. Beyond our logical positivism. Is it, is, was it Gödel's incompleteness theorem that, that tells us that a, a system can never be both complete and consistent? It does, but I have to say, as someone whose pet peeve it is when people use Gödel to describe social systems, that he's talking about a very specific definition of a formal system. Right, which means we can't use formal systems to describe everything. Is that true? Well, it means that if the system can't perform basic arithmetic, that it doesn't apply, for instance. But does that mean you can't use a formal system that performs basic arithmetic? Because like logic, I'm, I'm interested to... in I'm interested in what you were using, what argument you were using Godel to support here. Because I think that you have something valid, uh, and I should stop trying to prevent you from from saying oh. it. Oh well, well the thing is that the Noel was like the anthropologist was anti logical positivism, and I love what Godel said and. While it's depressing for like developers of formal systems, it says that no, we can't deduce everything. Not all useful knowledge can be deduced. Well, if you if you look at a corollary of Gödel's incompleteness, which is the halting problem, it turns out we can still make computer programs that do meaningful things. Yeah, I certainly hope so. And if we can't predict anything about them, <laughs> well, for some definition of meaningful. I think the best computer programs are programs that surprise us by being able to be adapted to novel situations. Adapted by people. Yeah. Jess, I think maybe closer to what you're saying is, is this idea that the system we're in and, and observing and trying to, to make changes in, that we're an in integral part of that system. And changing the system changes ourselves, which changes the system, which changes ourselves, and so on. Absolutely. And one of the reasons people struggle with implementing Agile is because for a team to be a self-organizing system, it has to exert influence on its environment. If your Agile team has no way of changing the management around it, the operations people, the budgeting restrictions, it cannot self-organize. That comes from dynamics in action. Well, Noel, I think you have a really interesting perspective, a valuable perspective, in part informed by your educational background, which I think is unique. And actually, we need more people with a background like yours, and also informed by 20 years of experience of actually doing software development. And um, I feel like we could get better as an industry by listening more and deducing less. It's one of the things I love about this podcast is that we talk to people about their lived experiences and we learn, I think, a lot more from sharing our shared, sharing our lived experiences with each other than we do by writing, reading papers or writing papers, by trying to apply hard science to our profession, by using the wrong metaphors. It comes down to an anthropological study of cultures and subcultures and how they relate to each other. 
And uh, I, I wanted to thank you for bringing that perspective to the show today. Sure. Glad I could help. <laughs> Glad I could be interesting, I think, is the, hopefully the point. Very interesting. I, I have a retrospective or whatever the thing is that we're doing now. Reflection. Yes, that's the word. That's the word. Yeah. A blameless, a blameless (laughs) reflection. But not thankless. Right. So my reflection uh, comes from one of the last things that, that Jess brought up, which is that we're working with systems that we can't fully define. And also this idea that, we're acting on systems that we're a part of. And so that changes, you know, this observer effect. And the idea is that if you have a static system that you're observing static and that you're not a part of the system, if you're observing a system and trying to modify it based on feedback and you're not a part of the system, then all you have to do is act on the system itself to change it. But if you're a part of that system, then you also have to be able to act on your model of the system to change it over time based on what you learn about the shared experience. And so maybe that's something that some of these teams struggling with Agile get wrong, is that they're trying to change the processes, but they're not trying to change their model for how the team works and how the team functions and how that changes over time. Or they're refusing to change themselves. Right. I wanted to talk about the ships some more because (laughs) I really like this. How do you get the ships pointed in the same direction? And I can like think of... We we mentioned three ways, right? So one was magnets, which doesn't make any sense, but that would be like aligning financial incentives, right? Or or, or another way would be maps, and that would be creating a two pager or whatever of what your organization is doing and where it's going, and and really laying out the where we are and where we're trying to get, which is challenging but useful. And another way, uh, we somebody said compass, and that would be like metrics. <laughs> Make this number bigger and you're going in the right direction, I promise. And another way would be the stars. And that would be like really articulating a vision that people can decide for themselves, am I moving toward that vision and see where they are in relation to it? Counterpoint, that requires a sextant. (laughs) But only only a metaphorical one. (laughs) That's fair. I love what you said, Jessica, about the stars, not only because it's a beautiful metaphor, but because it brings us back to that, that understanding of our place within a given context, right? When you navigate by the stars, you're not saying we're going to get to Polaris. You're saying I understand where I am relative to Polaris. And I think that success is relative. Having a good process is relative having good teammates and having trust on our team is relative and maybe that's good enough. Yeah. You're never going to reach Polaris. It's just that moving toward it takes you in the direction you want to go. Exactly. Noel, do you have any reflections? It's a good metaphor. I'm going to use the ship metaphor. I'm going to use the sailboat. Cause also I'm going to sail- use the ship out of that metaphor. Yeah. Cause sailboats also, uh, the, I mean, obviously are dependent on wind. Uh, there's an external force that, that determines your path, which I think is a, a, an important part of that, that metaphor. So yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to come out of this thinking a lot more about, about aligning process, values, culture, goals, and how to do that to make teams work better. Sweet. Oh, Thank you for oh. coming on the show today. Yeah. Yeah. Good talk. <laughs> 
thanks for thanks for letting me be here. Uh, we'll see you in another ninety episodes or so. <laughs> and in the meantime, if you want to continue this conversation and bring your own metaphors to bear and your own experience with process and agile and how it works or doesn't work for you, go to patreon.com slash greater than code, donate at any level, and you will find yourself in a community of very thoughtful, very highly engaged individuals who love talking about this sort of stuff on our private Slack. So not only are you supporting the conversations that we have as panelists and guests on the show, but also gaining the opportunity to have those conversations yourself with other listeners. So I encourage you all to do that. And even if you don't join the Slack, if you just donate to the Patreon, you're still one of those thoughtful, engaged individuals. So feel good about yourself. (laughs) 